This series contains occasional references to abuse, sexual misconduct, and other topics that some people might find disturbing. This episode in particular needs a strong content warning about suicide. March 21st, 1974. It's a bright day at the Playboy Mansion in Chicago. Bobby Arnstein, Hugh Hefner's executive assistant, is walking across the property. Suddenly, in front of the Iron Gates, a man in a long coat approaches her. He asks if she is Roberta Arnstein. When she says yes, he tells her he is a federal agent and that she is under arrest. He puts her in handcuffs and leads her away from the mansion. She seems to make light of it. And at the time, she, it was typical, Bobby. Then she says, well, um, I haven't had my lunch yet. <laughs> like it had interrupted her day. She refused to take life seriously. Despite Bobby's blasé attitude, this is a big deal. Bobby Arnstein is charged with conspiracy to distribute cocaine. The incident is reported all over the press. Hugh Hefner's secretary is under arrest. Secretary to Hugh Hefner seized on cocaine charge. Hefner's secretary subpoenaed by county. Hef's secretary faces drug case. For most people, this is the image of Bobby Arnstein, assistant to Playboy publisher Hugh Hefner, a girl who somehow became involved in the cruel and shoddy drug world. This isn't just the story of one woman caught up in a drug arrest. There's a lot more going on under the surface here. And it marks one of the most difficult moments of Bobby's life. And Hugh Hefner's too. There were dark times. I think what he would describe as the darkest time was when Bobby Arnstein, his assistant, she was arrested and all hell broke loose. The world Hefner has so carefully constructed is knocked off its axis. You know, it was a world where everyone was pushing the envelope a little. We were all on the fringes of the society, not really in mainstream. And in those situations, there are some victims sometimes, and Bobby was one of those victims. Because of her association with Playboy and with me, she became the central focus in a cocaine conspiracy case in which it appears she was only peripherally involved. She deserved better than this. I'm Amy Rose Spiegel, and this is Power, Hugh Hefner, The Rise and Fall of Playboy. Episode four. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In the early 1970s, Hefner is one of the world's most successful businessmen. And although the competition from Penthouse has some impact, 
Penthouse was the first mass circulation magazine that showed full frontal nudity. Playboy's circulation is at its peak. The magazine had subscription, a number of about six million, but each magazine was passed around to four or five readers. So you were reaching like 20 million people. In his Chicago mansion, Hefner is embodying the hedonistic lifestyle that he first dreamed up in the magazine and then made real in the clubs. At the present time, I think it is um, safe to say that I'm enjoying um, my bachelor existence. He not only lived a life of sleeping with a different woman every day, but he bragged about it. He threatened the value system that most of us had learned as we were growing up. And that included, you know, you don't talk openly about sex. You, you're not even supposed to enjoy it. Hep just blew those barriers down. I think that rubbed the establishment the wrong way, that not only was he living an outlandish lifestyle, but he was doing it right out front and seeming to enjoy it, which meant that all of us coming along, coming of age, were saying, whoa, maybe I can, you know, maybe I don't have to live like my parents live. So uh, they saw him as a cultural threat, that he was uh, sort of leading to the downfall of traditional moral values. Sex is a big part of this, but the moral panic is growing around another issue. There's a new political war beginning, one that will have a far more personal impact on Hefner and his inner circle, and Americans as a whole, than any of the controversies so far. Fundamentally, it is essential for the American people to be alerted to this danger, to recognize that it is a danger that will not pass. And one woman is caught up in the middle. In this series, we're telling Hefner's story through the eyes of the women who made Playboy what it was. But some of those women aren't here anymore. Today's episode is about someone who can't tell us her story. Bobby Arnstein. She was Hef's executive assistant. Bobby meant so much to Hefner. She was more than a friend. She was an aide, a confidant, an advisor one of the most important people in his universe. Hefner had learned to trust her judgment, and she was the gatekeeper. And Keith Strop was one of Bobby's closest friends. He's going to help us tell her story. Keith's path to Playboy, and to Bobby, begins in the late 60s. With the overwhelming fact of life if you were a young person in 1968 was the Vietnam War. Keith was in law school at the time. At that time, any male who was 18 years or older either had to be a full-time student or they were drafted and sent to Vietnam and all too many of my colleagues were coming back in body bags. The terrible loss in American lives, prestige and morale. And this is a tragedy of our stubbornness there. And with each escalation, the world comes closer to the brink of cosmic disaster. When he finishes law school, he is eligible to be drafted, but he wants a way out of the war. And so I was looking around trying to come up with some project that would keep me out of Vietnam. But once I was introduced to this concept of using your legal skills or your law degree to try to impact public policy rather than to help a few clients, uh, I was really exhilarated by it.
There's one particular area of law in which he believes he can use his skills for the common good. I had first smoked marijuana when I was a freshman in Georgetown Law School in 1965. So by that point, I had been smoking for five, six, seven years. It seemed to me the public interest project I wanted to take on was ending marijuana prohibition and legalizing marijuana. So he starts a company called Normal. The National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. And he starts looking for funding, but tough luck in that cultural climate. Every reply is the same. Saying, well, it's a good idea, I wish you well, but no, it's not a priority for us. Until a friend tells him that Playboy is willing to go to bat for causes others won't. And Hugh Hefner just might have the answer he's looking for. The Playboy Foundation was a philanthropic arm of the business, which provided grants to projects involved in social justice, censorship, and sexuality. Maybe they would be interested in taking up the difficult cause of decriminalizing weed, too. So Keith shoots his shot, and he's invited for an introductory meeting at Playboy. I think they just were trying to figure out if I was a serious person that they should consider funding or whether I was some, uh, you know, flake, long-haired hippie or whatever it was after all the anti-war years. And we all had lots of hair back then. I still do, by the way. (laughs) Then I got a call a couple of weeks later inviting me out to meet with the Playboy Foundation and with Hugh Hefner. Keith gets straight to the point at that meeting. He asks Hefner for a significant amount of funding. And I think that I had initially asked for $50,000. A few days go by before he hears back, and... They were offering me $5,000. It's much more than anyone else is willing to give Keith. He's making a difficult sell, after all. Weed is still really taboo. Legalizing marijuana was considered a fairly radical, progressive move uh, back in the early 70s. As usual, it was important for Havner to be seen as part of the vanguard of social change. And according to Keith, this was about more than the drug itself. Legalizing marijuana fit very nicely in his idea of how important personal privacy was. Plus, it fit in with Hefner's idea of a good time, which, as ever, was his biggest concern of all. By that point, Hefner was no longer drinking alcohol. He had used alcohol when he was younger, but he he had quit that. used to be always pictured holding a Pepsi-Cola. But he also had begun to smoke marijuana. We might picture Hefner with a glass of dark liquor. But he began to smoke more weed in the 70s, and he reported it gave him a new appreciation of sex. Smoking helped put me in touch with the realm of the senses— I discovered a whole other dimension to sex. So Hefner has given him $5,000. But Keith still needs much more than this to make an impact. To keep the money coming in, he has to get into Hefner's inner circle to show him just how important and worthy of a bigger price tag this cause really is. And so he seeks an ally. There were only two people who could set up an appointment to have you meet with Hefner. One was executive vice president of the publishers, Dick Rosenzweig. And the other was Bobby Arnstein. 
Keith is introduced to Bobby by Michelle Yuri, the cartoons editor at Playboy. Michelle supports Normal and recognizes that Keith will need other allies inside the mansion. So she sets up a meeting between Keith and Bobby. My first impression, I mean, she was beautiful and classy and sexy and she dressed really nice. She was hip as hell. So I was overwhelmed. You know, I'm a little farm boy saying, Jesus, I'm not used to dealing with these beautiful women. She was known for her style and her biting humor. She loved Lenny Bruce. I have a, a reputation for being sort of controversial and irreverent and also the semantic bear trap of bad taste. She loved debating things. She loved throwing out things that would cause you to say, Bobby, what the hell are you talking about? And then we'd spend a couple of hours debating it. She was a delight to be with. She was funny and irreverent and caustic and she was into spirituality. She was uh, high-minded in the best of ways. Bobby Arnstein seemed to have this effect on most people she met. Marilyn Cole, the groundbreaking playmate we met last time, remembers her as a force of personality. Well, I knew Bobby very well. Bobby was unique in the sense of her intellect. That was her forte and her humor. And the way she could calm Hefner, she could make him laugh, she could, you know, cheer him up. She knew how to play him in the sense, not for personal uh, greed, but just to make him happier. And she was totally loyal to him. Bobby grew up in the suburbs of Chicago and started working for Hefner straight after she finished high school. They dated for a while. She quickly moved up the ladder from being a secretary at Playboy to becoming indispensable as Hefner's personal assistant, living with him at the mansion. Her job wasn't just a job. Largely, it was to keep people away from Hefner. Hefner had learned to trust her judgment, and she was, uh, as I say, one of the maybe three most powerful people in the mansion. Hefner relied on her, and he needed to keep her as close as he could. Her office was almost right next door to Hef's office, which was terribly important, obviously, like with a lot of corporations, how close you are to the boss matters. And for her to be effective as a gatekeeper, she had to be there where she saw anybody who was trying to go see Hef. One of her jobs at the mansion was she uh, was responsible to keep a little container of hand-rolled marijuana cigarettes joints on the Hefner's private bedstead so that if he decided he was going to take some time off and have sex with someone, and of course that was in an environment where there were all kinds of people around that were only too happy to have sex with Hugh Hefner, if he wanted to reach up and smoke a joint, there would always be a container full of marijuana. I always thought that was an appropriate part of Bobby's responsibility. It certainly wasn't her most important. On the other hand, you can see it, it indicates how much he trusted her. He wouldn't have wanted some stranger doing that because obviously there were uh, people that would have loved to have taken Hefner down and they tried. So she was taking on, in a tumultuous time surrounding drugs, a lot of risk too. And Keith says that Bobby used Hefner's trust and her own power to help others as much as she could. She was infamous for standing up on the inside and demanding raises for 
the butlers and for the maids, uh, the, the working staff at the mansion, there were quite a few of them, who sometimes might be overlooked or forgotten when they were giving out raises or bonuses. Bobby was always the one who would end up going to have him say, no, no, Hef, we've got to cover these people as well. She had a good heart. Keith got to know Bobby first as a business acquaintance. She was able to get him to Hefner. After all, she controlled his calendar. She was enormously helpful in that she would let me know when Hef was about to take some time off work and might want to go play those pinball machines. He had a game room that had like 80 or 100 the best pinball machines ever made. And he'd play the pinball machines for several hours. And when I was there... Bobby and I would would spend that time with him, and we'd smoke a joint or two and talk about normal. But for Bobby, Hef probably would have never known my name. It worked. The funding for Keith's organization, Normal, kept coming. And Bobby and Keith? Very quickly, we became dear friends. And as Keith got to know Bobby, even dating her for a while, he discovered she had been through a lot. Now, um, she had a lot of problems, There were sides to her that were very insecure. There's no doubt about it. There was a terrible tragedy with Bobby Arnstein was in love with Victor's brother, Tom Lowndes, who was lined up to be an editor at the magazine. This is Marilyn Cole again. You might recall from the last episode that she married Victor Lowndes, who was the director of Playboy Europe. His brother, Tom, was involved in the Playboy world too. And he was handsome, Harvard-educated. Bobby, fell. they fell in love. And tragically, she was driving a car and there was an accident and Tom Lowndes was killed. And I think it took her many, many years, if ever, for her to get over that guilt. And I think that was the root of Bobby's real depression or maybe something even before in her life. Well, you know, however we're brought up, it all is part of how we cope with things that are thrown at us later on. Whatever the reason, she clearly always felt insecure. She threw herself into her work, and things got hard fast. When you feel that your job is your family, home, and purpose, dangerous things can happen. Bobby was underappreciated and underpaid, reportedly saying Hefner was demanding and took her for granted. She could sleep for a few hours, but if he needed something, he gave a call. Three minutes, she'd be around the corner, you know, back at her desk. And that happened all the time. When I used to stay with her, I don't think I was ever there that Hef didn't call numerous times to have her come over and help with something. If something went awry, Bobby's phone would ring and Hefner would roar, there's been an incredible fuck up. And this was even just if his kitchen accidentally served him lumpy gravy. There was no limit to Bobby's duties, but they all amounted to trying to keep Hefner happy. Whatever he wanted, and whenever he wanted it, she'd find a way to do it. Bobby almost never left. I mean, she went for months without ever stepping out of the mansion. Her life was in the mansion. It was dedicated to Hefner. He was the most important person in her life, kind of a father figure, I would suggest. We've heard that Hefner positioned himself as a caretaker for other young women with limited options. Marilyn Grabowski, Playboy's longtime photo editor, told us Hefner became a father figure to her at the mansion when she needed somewhere to land. 
And later on, we'll hear from even more people who tried to find a sanctuary and family through Hefner. Bobby, like so many other women, did her best to make Hefner's Playboy Mansion feel like an actual home. Her version of this was both special and very sad. I think she felt more protected in that environment than in any other place in her life. It was like about three rooms. It wasn't real big, but, you know, there was a bedroom and a sitting room and a little kitchenette, although she never cooked there because she ordered food. I mean, the Playboy Mansion, always 24 hours a day, you just pick up the phone and order whatever you wanted. It was painted dark. I think the walls were black. It was it was not your ordinary environment. You knew when you walked in, uh, this was a lady living in her own world here, but it was a lovely, gilded world. In 1974, Bobby is taken out of that gilded world. She's forced into the very center of a political and moral crisis. And in dealing with this situation, protecting Hefner's power isn't a privilege at all. That's coming up. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. To understand what happened to Bobby Arnstein, we need to go back a few years, to 1971. Two years into his presidency, Richard Nixon gives a landmark speech. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. This is the start of the war on drugs. And over the next few years, there's a feeling that Nixon's offensive is meant to take down anyone he disagrees with. So Hefner and Playboy end up in political crosshairs on two fronts, the war on pornography and now the war on drugs. He had a lot of problems with the Republican government. They were out to get him. Marilyn Grabowski recalls a rumor that people were planting drugs in the mansion. I think it was that they wanted to catch somebody using drugs at the mansion, which is why I've never seen it documented, but a celebrity's son was responsible for, quote, bringing drugs into the mansion or what have you. I don't know what happened to that. It all went away. 
I knew that there were a lot of attempts to get rid of Playboy at that time. According to both Keith and Marilyn, hard drugs weren't a big part of mansion life at this time. Hefner set ground rules about what was and wasn't allowed. There were stories that uh, at the Playboy Mansion, cocaine was passed around in bowls at the parties. Well, that was bullshit. That never happened. There's certainly not when I was around there. Hef did not allow cocaine. There were a few people occasionally, like Bobby would have a gram of cocaine in, in her purse or something, but she would never do it in front of Hef. He wouldn't allow it. He allowed marijuana smoking. was no problem. He didn't care if anybody did that. But otherwise, no illicit drugs in front of Hef. But the idea that Hefner might be involved in drugs wasn't baseless. He took amphetamines a lot in Playboy's early days, enjoyed marijuana, and spent a hefty amount of money supporting pro-legislation groups. They gave us $100,000 a year in cash. They gave us two full-page ads a year in the magazine. Hefner's overall attitude about drugs, like so much of his legacy, isn't straightforward and sometimes feels contradictory. The thing is, Hef didn't take drugs. Oh, once in a while, I think he tried marijuana, but his drug of choice was Jim Beam. Give him a glass of Jim Beam or something, you know, or a Coke. Okay, I'm going to relay away one anecdote. I took Hef out one night with a group of people, and I had had an ecstasy, and I thought, this is the best thing in the world. So I said, Hef, would you try this? He didn't want to, but he took one. At about 3 o'clock in the morning, he was dancing around the room of the restaurant doing a samba line. Wow. (laughs) True story, swear to God. He just wasn't a druggie. Even at the end of his life, in his will, Hefner specified that his heirs would be disinherited if they had any relationship with illegal drugs. But his anti-drug statements didn't play out in his actions, as we'll find out later in the series. Whatever the truth about drugs in the Playboy world, there is evidence that the Nixon administration was targeting Hefner. Nixon famously had a list, curated by his advisors, of political opponents and targets. Hugh Hefner's name was right there. And there's some evidence that he was under investigation by the FBI. He was being surveilled. In 1974, a memo from a Chicago strike force that was tasked with cracking down on drugs in the city revealed that they believed the illegal trafficking of narcotics permeated the Playboy organization. So how did Bobby Arnstein get tangled up in all this? A few years earlier, she'd started dating a new guy. Bobby had, I think at this point, she's probably in her young 30s, maybe, and she had begun to date the younger younger men, younger boys, toys, you know. None of them were serious, and there were a series of them. Obviously, if you're in the middle of the Playboy environment, everybody sleeps with everybody, so she was no different in the sense of having her boy toys. And this one was a fellow named Ron Scharf. And one day in 1971, this fling, who also happened to sell cocaine, invited Bobby along on a trip to Miami. And they flew down and met a drug dealer, George Matthews, I believe his name was, to pick up some cocaine. Now, Bobby just went along because she felt like getting to Florida for a day and go, why not get a trip with her boyfriend for a couple of days? Well, 
they got back and uh, everything was all right for a year or so. But then in 1972, the people Bobby met on that trip start getting arrested. Indicted on a cocaine conspiracy charge. And initially Bobby was not indicted. But she's very aware of the case. She watches it linger for a few years before the Miami dealer is tried, convicted, and given a 15-year prison sentence. So all of a sudden, he flips, and he understands that if he's going to avoid serving that 15-year sentence, he better come up with something pretty good for the U.S. attorney. His story changes. This time... He remembers distinctly that Bobby Arnstein took the pound of cocaine and put it in her handbag. Keith doesn't believe it. The first time the dealer had been investigated and incriminated himself, he did not incriminate Bobby at all. But this next time around, they came out with some new indictments. And all of a sudden, Bobby was indicted as part of the conspiracy. And so, in 1974, three years after her fun trip to Miami... Bobby walks out of her apartment one day and she was cutting across to another entrance in the other part of the mansion. And this uh, DEA agent or FBI agent, one of the two, came up to her and announced that he had an arrest warrant for her and put her in handcuffs. Bobby is charged with conspiracy to distribute and sell cocaine. And she's found to have a small amount of cocaine on her at the time of her arrest. One of Hefner's closest allies is plastered all over the papers in a drug scandal. And the pressure intensifies. Coming up. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Federal prosecutor James Thompson becomes the face of Bobby's case. Hep put up unlimited money and we hired uh, Tom Sullivan, who was a farmer U.S. attorney and uh, by this point, a private lawyer. Keith worked closely with Bobby and the lawyer to build her defense. So we ended up going through a three-day trial Keith recalls that Bobby didn't always seem to take it so seriously. 
she and Ron were passing notes back and forth. And I remember at one time, I, I thought that I had seen one of them pass the other one a little note, but the note was really a, a little bit of cocaine folded up in a paper. You know, you used to get that. And I, I screamed at her later that day. I said, Bobby, for Christ's sake, do you understand what would happen? Now, I, you know, I may have been wrong. I, I can't, it's 45 years ago, but I was pretty certain at the time that the two of them had thought they were doing something cute by snorting a line of cocaine in the federal courthouse. Jesus. <laughs> Their defense strategy was to attack the credibility of the witness who had named Bobby the drug dealer from Florida, George Matthews. And apparently that wasn't successful because after a three-day trial, they in fact convicted both Ron and Bobby. And subsequent to that, Bobby was given a provisional 15 years. Ron was given six years. So why did Bobby get over double the sentence that he does? Keith has his theory. And they felt that if they put enough pressure on Bobby, she would eventually have to flip on half and they'd have their big celebrity defend it. After the trial, newspapers reported that there was testimony given about cocaine-fueled parties at the mansion and that the FBI had bugged Ron Scharf's phone and recorded Bobby requesting some, quote, dynamite coke. Keith says the prosecution made it clear from the beginning that they were interested in Bobby's boss, that they believed this coke was headed to the mansion. And Keith thinks that they held this over Bobby. If she turned on Hefner, maybe her sentence would be reduced. Now, there was one other step in there that was especially uncomfortable at the time. James Thompson, the U.S. prosecutor, arranged a meeting with Bobby. And advised her that there was a contract out on her life. And when she said, well, who would that be from? They suggested you should not trust either friend or foe. Now, what obviously they were suggesting with Hefner or his allies or something had put a contract out on Bobby. That's absurd. Hef was not a goon. He was a fairly sophisticated man. He didn't have guns and stuff like that. But uh, that's how much they were willing to squeeze Bobby to try to get to Hef. According to Keith, they made a big mistake in underestimating Bobby's loyalty to Hefner. There was no way she was ever going to incriminate Hefner, even, even if there had been a basis to, she wouldn't have done it, but there was no basis. She wasn't going to spend 15 minutes in federal prison, not just 15 years. She said, can you guarantee me 30 days before I would have to report to prison? In fact, she called me that last day in the afternoon and we had a, a chat. It was it seemed perfectly fine. I later realized it was her way of saying goodbye. Bobby left the mansion and checked into a hotel. And she went over and killed herself. Bobby Arnstein died at 34. The suicide of Bobby Arnstein makes any further silence impossible. When he receives the news... Hefner is distraught. The very next morning, he holds a press conference and attacks the prosecutors. But because of her association with Playboy and with me, she became the central focus in a cocaine conspiracy case in which it appears she was only peripherally involved. She was one of the best, brightest, 
most worthwhile women I have ever known. She will be missed. Actually, I was sort of proud of him. He, he, it's as close as I've ever seen him being out of control. He felt some guilt. You know, he realized they weren't after Bobby. She was no big player. They were after him. Terrible ter- shock and, and sadness and grief for Hefner especially because he relied on her. I don't think the publicity did them any good at the time. Prosecutor James Thompson strongly denied the accusation that he was using Arnstein to get to Hefner. He was quoted in the New York Times as saying, We don't conduct headhunting prosecutions. The notion that we have targeted Hefner is wrong. The notion that I'm out for his scalp because of some political motivation is self-flattering on his part. Thompson resigned a few months later and went on to become governor of Illinois. He died in 2020. And in 1975, Thompson's successor dropped the investigation into Playboy, making a statement that there had been no evidence of unlawful acquisition or distribution of drugs. Not long after her death, they closed their investigation of Hefner. They concluded they didn't have any information uh, involving Hefner and that cocaine deal and never had had. It was all just uh, an attempt for uh, glory, you know, that if they could bring down Hugh Hefner and the Playboy Empire and all of these, uh, this new morality that Hefner represented, that somehow that would build their career. I felt incredible anger. But boy, to have your best friend just absolutely destroyed and uh, all the ramifications of that. The war on drugs is just, I think, this week 50 years old from when Nixon first announced his, his war on drugs. Awful lot of people have paid a heavy price for that. Years later, the FBI released a Freedom of Information document on Hefner, spanning the 50s to the 2000s. Well, almost. The war on drugs era is glaringly absent. We reached out to the Department of Justice and we'll include any response we get later in the series. In their grief, people close to Bobby are angry and looking for someone or something to blame for her loss. But whatever additional hardship she faced because of the war on drugs and her association with Hefner, Bobby's death is a personal tragedy, and her loss isn't soon forgotten. The memory of Bobby Arnstein's life at the mansion would be felt for decades after, not just by Hefner, but by the women who lived there in her shadow, even if they barely knew her, or never even met her. Holly Madison, one of Hugh Hefner's most beloved ex-girlfriends, remembers just how impossible it felt to separate her own self-worth from who she was in the confines of the Playboy Mansion. Her story, too, is about a home that could also feel like a trap for the girls and women who came to live there. There was always this weird feeling at the mansion. As unhappy as I was and as not great as the situation was, you know, I wanted to create a safety net for myself and kind of having that feeling of the rug could be pulled out from under you at any time was really scary and just really bad for, I think, anybody's self-esteem to feel like you could be replaced at any minute. 
Bobby's death left Hefner at sea, and things are only getting worse for him. He and Playboy are thrown into a tailspin, and in the 80s, the business will face a full-blown crisis. The magazine was losing circulation. The Playboy clubs had been virtually abandoned, and it was a disaster, a total disaster. Hefner calls on another young woman he trusts to step in and turn his life and company around. And this time, he's looking to his family to help him rebuild. Hefner needs the help of his only daughter, 29-year-old Christy Hefner. We had already started to move into television, and that became really valuable for us in the 80s as cable really gained traction. That was the period in which Playboy Channel launched. That's next time on Power, Hugh Hefner, and the Rise and Fall of Playboy. If you're in the U.S. and thinking about suicide, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Or call the Suicide Crisis Line at 1-800-784-2433. Additional resources are available if you or someone you know needs them. Text START to 741741 to message with the crisis text line. If you're in the UK and looking for support, Samaritans is available for anyone struggling to cope and provides a safe place to talk 24 hours a day. Phone 116123. Visit the Samaritans website at www.samaritans.org. If you want to hear more from the incredible women I'm talking to for this series, hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts. This week, you'll find an extended cut of my conversation with Suze Randall. She's a British photographer who was a photo editor at Playboy, working with Marilyn Grabowski, before becoming a pioneer in the world of online erotica. If you're an Apple Podcast subscriber, you'll also be able to hear ad-free episodes every week. Power Hugh Hefner is a Something Else production. It's hosted by me, Amy Rose Spiegel. The series producer is Dave Anderson, and the producers are Georgia Mills, Chica Ayers, and Paul Smith. Our associate producer is Millie Chu. Mixing and sound design come from Sam Baer and Josh Hahn. Mira Sharma and Peggy Sutton are the editors. The executive producer is Peggy Sutton. With thanks to Jen Mystery, Ike Egbatola, Mia Warren, Grant Irving, Lily Hambly, Gulliver Lawrence Tickle, Siobhan Donnelly, Jez Nelson, and Leanne Richardson. If you love the show, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps new listeners find the show. Hi, everyone. One last thing. Thank you to all of you for listening to Power Hugh Hefner. We hope you're loving the show as much as we love making it, and we want to hear from you. Your feedback goes a long way, and it only takes a few minutes. Just head to powerpod.fans to answer a few questions. Thank you so much. 